Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of retro spoiler specials. And this one, like our Love Actually spoiler special, is Christmassy tinged and arrives wrapped in a bow and a lovely ribbon, just like Frank Shirley, just in time for the festive season. Because we are talking today about one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time, and in fact, one of my favorite movies of all time. Arguably the best in the Vacation series, it is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, oh yes indeed. And joining me to discuss this over the next hour or so are two of my finest festive colleagues of such lethal cunning, Helen O'Hara. Hello. And Nick Dissemlian. Eat my road, red liver lips. <laughs> it's, it's the red that gets me. Like, why red liver lips? It's very specific. Do livers have lips? Um, or is it, are these lips like livers? You lips don't want to go near like livers. brown liver lips. Yeah. That would be that would no, be, that would be unpleasant. But, but livers are kind of brownish, aren't they? Mm. 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 It's very interesting. Well, thank you for joining us on this uh, spoiler <laughs> special. There we go. We really got to the nitty gritty of this movie. Uh, but yes, indeed, uh, I love Christmas Vacation. I always have. Ever first, I since saw it when I was young, bairn back in Northern Ireland. And uh, so I, I knew one day I would talk about it with two people on a podcast uh, to herald the Christmas season. But I also thought to myself one day, one day that I would get to talk to the film's director, Jeremiah S. Chechik, on a podcast. Yes, indeed. Those are dreams I've harboured since I was a child. And uh, this week that came true for I caught up with Jeremiah S. Chechik, for that is his name, on the dread soon, but I think the sound quality is pretty good in this one. And we had a good old natter, spoiler-filled and otherwise, just general recollections really about his time directing this movie. What a way to make your feature debut. Here we go. Before we get into it, uh, here is Jeremiah S. Chechik talking about National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on this retro spoiler special for National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, or as it is known over here apparently now, National Lampoon's Winter Holiday, by the film's director, Jeremiah S. Jechik. Uh, how are you, sir? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm okay. I could tell by... Under under, under these conditions, uh, you know, we're walking and talking, uh, so, you know, yeah. we're lucky. We are indeed. We are indeed. I could tell by your raised eyebrows, sir, whenever I said National Lampoon's Winter Holiday, that that, that was new information for you. In fairness, it was new information for me about a week ago. It is new. It is new. I've never heard that or seen it or anything. <laughs> no one tells the director anything. No. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, why change the title now? Uh, it's just bizarre. <laughs> but uh, okay. But the point is the film remains the same. And this is a film I have adored ever since I, I first saw it. And I imagine we just spoke there before I started press and record. Uh, we spoke there about how often this movie comes up for you with every passing year. And it, it I guess it, it, it becomes more of a thing. It seems to be now heralded as, as a, as a modern Christmas classic. Is that, that must blow your uh, mind. Yes. Uh, it, it, it certainly does. <laughs> blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when we set out to, uh, to make it, um, at that time in my particular kind of adventure in directing, I had been uh, doing commercials. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was kind of known for long lens, fast cutting, very sexy, monochrome, beautiful light, that kind of hipster, you know, commercials at that time. 
So when I got this movie, it was I had to really restrain myself in terms of my visual language and really refer back to a classicist approach of, you know, Courier and Ives or Norman Rockwell, sort of a mythos of Americana visuals. And so I restrained myself in that way and tried to make as many decision that were, decisions that were at least inviting the film to to last a little bit longer than what was hip at the moment. Mm. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, one never expects it to to achieve, <laughs> I don't know, 30 years. Um, you know, so it's as much of, of a surprise to me as the many who've enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I, it's not that I see it very often because I don't. Uh, I did see it when it opened. I didn't see it for a really long time, uh-huh. maybe about uh, 20, well, maybe about 15 years ago. There, w- there was a screening at the American Cinematheque, and that was just kind of fully loaded and interesting, and I answered a lot of questions there. And then recently, I managed to take my granddaughter when it screened in theaters. That was really excited, and that was really the first time I thought I experienced the movie a little more objectively, uh-huh. and um, I thought it was funny. <laughs> it is. It's very funny. And I, I have to say as well, watching it over the years, because when I, when I first saw it, I was, oh, I don't want to age myself here, Jeremiah, but uh, I was uh, just started in my, my, my teenage adventure. Should we just say that? And uh, I was obviously focusing on the, the, the more slapstick element of the of the movie, the the, you know, the sled that suddenly rockets down the hill at a thousand miles an hour, Clark falling off a ladder, the the, the, you know, the business with the lights. I focus on all that stuff. And as I've been watching it more and more, I watch it every single year. And I find myself gravitating towards the quieter stuff, the more heartfelt stuff that maybe it was always been there, but I maybe missed it and overlooked it first time around. Uh, but it's always been there. Uh, well, certainly for me, it, you know, John wrote a beautiful script, and and uh, John ha- had Hughes ha- had mm-hmm. a real kind of connection to a certain kind of iconic sentimentality, shall we call it, um, you know, or emotionalism, as mm-hmm. you know, in the in the best possible way. And and it was my absolute focus in making the movie. Um, because I, I had never made a comedy. I'd never made a movie before, but I certainly wasn't um, what I would consider experienced in terms of comedic direction. I, I literally just felt, well, if I think it's funny, maybe there's one other person on earth who would find it funny. Um, and, you know, I'll start there. Uh, but but um, my focus uh, as a director was to really uh, land and drill down on those emotional moments because I thought, despite how broad the characters are, or uh, despite the kind of slapstick element of the comedy, if one lands the emotive quality, if that is the hook that the audiences are going to use mm. to follow a sort of every man's journey into trying to do what he believes is right, even at the expense of destroying everything around him. And uh, so those little moments where where we really get to experience the feeling uh, of the interior and frustration and uh, eventual, we can call it a triumph of some description, <laughs> that really uh, holds uh, one's uh, attention. In fact, in the very first public screening 
of the film, you know, when we were just previewing it for audiences. And I was, of course, terrified <laughs> it being my first movie and thought, well, if this doesn't go well, that's the end of this career. Yeah. And I was sitting next to the head of the studio, Terry Simmel which made it even more kind of starkly pressured. But so we were sitting next to each other and just experience, you know, in the middle of the, the audience, just experienced the movie it was playing very well. People were laughing. And, but I, of course said, yeah, yeah, the laughing now wait to the end of the movie. They're going to hate it. You know, they'll walk away. But at some point in the movie, it was when Clark was trying to, plug in those lights, that scene where he really builds it up and drum roll and the family's around and go for it, Clark. And everybody is is there. And the audience got really, really quiet. Um, and he jammed these plugs together and nothing happens. But at that moment, the entire uh, preview audience just went, oh, they just like <laughs> groaned. And at that very moment, I turned to Terry Sella, who was, you know, like I said, the head of uh, Warners. Yes. And we looked at each other and we knew this movie was going to be uh, successful. And, and I felt it because of that moment, not because of the jokes, but because I said, oh, my God, the audience is really with this character as cartoony, as broad, as crazy as he is. The audience feels his pain, his frustration. And yeah. so those emotional moments were very important. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I think uh, it's really interesting, for example, that this is the rare vacation movie that gives Clark an unfarnished win. Yes, he goes through an awful lot of you know bad shit in order to get to the win at the end. But the mm. last line of the movie is him, you know, feeling content. And the last line of the movie is him saying... I did it. Yeah, and I love that. I really, really love that. Was that was that was that always how the movie ended? With uh, yeah. in your recollection? Yeah, there were some adjustments. I, I remember making in the final mix. John was in Chicago doing Uncle Buck, I think, at the time. Mm. And uh, you know, the studio was very confident because the previews had gone very well, and and John was very happy. They they had just left, you know, this first time director in charge of a big studio movie to do uh, what it is he wanted to do, and and so I did it. I I made some adjustments at the end, but that was the operative focus is is just to, for him to have accomplished what he set out to be. Then it you know the movie lands. There's a reason. We watched it, went through all of that. So yeah, um, there you go. How much of a bearing on this movie did the previous two vacation movies at that point have? Uh, I, I guess for, for, for Chevy and Beverly in particular, having played these characters twice before, it would have had an impact. But it strikes me in a way that this is a movie that doesn't really pay attention to the fact that there were two previous vacation movies. So you, you could watch this one as a standalone. Is that how you, you approached it? Well, uh, I approached it just the way you described aggressively. You know, I've never seen the first two movies. Have you seen them now? No. No. <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, I, and, and uh, you know, I'm not doing it to kind of be difficult. Uh, of course. Uh, but um, the movie w was based on a short story, Christmas 59, I believe it was mm -hmm. called. You know, John Hughes uh, wrote for the uh, Harvard Lampoon. He was an extraordinarily gifted writer. And, you know, I, I, I did feel that 
he, he had taken this short story. He had made a script of it. It wasn't the kind of script that would be naturally uh, a vacation movie with Chevy. Mm-hmm. This could have been a classic soup to nuts Christmas movie with a new cast, etc. I'm not sure if Warner Brothers had pushed him in that direction to do it, mm-hmm. uh, to you know fold it into uh, what then was kind of a teetering franchise. Uh, but he did. And uh, I approached it in the same way that I think he wrote the story. I, I just wanted to make a standalone movie. Of course, you know, uh, probably my ego was very much uh, involved. And I don't say probably. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? I wanted yeah. to, I, I did want it to kind of sow my own o- oats, lay down my own kind of markers and make my own movie, mm-hmm. even if I was operating under the illusion that it was an original movie. <laughs> and so I did uh, everything I could to avoid kind of uh, drafting the first two movies. So I, I purposely didn't, didn't watch them. They weren't the kind of movies that I, I would have been watching anyway uh-huh. at the time. So, you know, my, my process was very much to create a standalone movie. Uh, the characters, uh, yes, they had played those characters before. I didn't address it. I mean, they took my direction for the most part. Beverly resisted for a long time. Oh, really? Okay. I, I think I think Beverly was frustrated at that point. Um doing that kind of work as Beverly is in it, you know, she's a really great actress uh mm. dramatic and comedic mm. and and you know you, you're in, in some ways actors will know this you're kind of stuck in a franchise it's good and bad you know um you know mm-hmm. you have a continuity of work good paydays etc you know the characters i mean we we feel less about it now because of television where an actor will come and play a character evolving it could be for years and years and years and years yeah but uh, you know at that point i just tried to cast around them because you know the 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 kind of supporting cast the kids were all cast by me and um so that was uh, a way to keep it fresh. Mm. And, uh, you know, I just approached it as characters. I mean, they knew the internal kind of comedic rhythms. Certainly, I wasn't going to teach them that. You know? <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the kind of, I think that tension between an original film and the way it was marketed as part of the vacation triple threat at that time mm. uh, just served the movie uh, well open to a, uh, an audience and and had, as i recall it was number one for like four weeks which i didn't know i thought oh yeah that's good that's natural <laughs> i had no idea that's unusual <laughs> yeah very much. now right? especially yeah. now my god yeah well i mean nowadays you can of course you could you could be number one with a movie that makes you know five dollars <laughs> you'd be okay but <laughs> exactly yeah but back then it was, it was slightly yeah. different uh, but it's interesting that you you um you bring up you know beverly and uh and, and chevy's performances and beverly i guess is very much She's very much the voice of reason in this, whereas Clark is the, the, the comedic spark of the movie. And working with Chevy to get that performance, I mean, there, you know, obviously there's been you know, all sorts of talk over the years about how Chevy can sometimes be difficult to work with. I've spoken to you about this movie before, and you told me that he was a, a dream to work with on this one. He was. He was, he was great, yeah. 
Yeah, because I think he, you know, he he wanted me to direct it. So uh, obviously, um, um, I think you know, John wanted me to do it. I was, I think, I was the second choice uh, as director. Chris Columbus uh, was was discussed. I think Chevy did not want him to direct it. That was to my benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm not sure they got along. Uh, and Chris, you know, being the the talent that he is, um, mm-hmm. you know, went on to make <laughs> fantastic movies. So it was to his benefit, too. <laughs> uh, but che- Chevy wanted me to do it. And, um, you know, John wanted me to do it in the studio, wanted me to do it. So uh, I felt supported the whole way. Mm-hmm. Um, any any kind of tensions I had with, with Beverly, I, I didn't mind them because I just thought this is part of directing, too, just working through that. Mm-hmm. Um all, all the, you know, Diane Ladd, uh, Doris Roberts, uh, E.G. Marshall, mm. you know, uh, John Randolph, uh, Johnny Galecki, of course, and uh, Juliet. You know, th- these were actors, all of them really, really solid. I mean, look, look at Johnny Galecki. I mean, who would have predicted that he would be one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood? <laughs> I love him for it. You know, I see him once in a while at Warner's. and, and uh, you know, deservedly so. And all those great character actors who who really, uh, in a way, and I told them, you know, come to my rescue if I'm acting like a douche, if I don't know what I'm doing, just uh, circle me and, and, and straighten me out. But, uh, you know, they, they were very, very supportive. And of course, you know, I, I all, you know, all tributes to John Hughes, because he wrote a great script. And, and so there, there wasn't those as often or sometimes happens when you're making a movie and you're running a scene um, and it's just not playing somewhat and you have to kind of dig in and find it and rewrite and, you know, uh, just kind of move through all of these things to get the scene right. Now, John, John's scripts, I mean, they were tight, they were funny. And if you kind of dug into them, you could just make them funnier and funnier. So, so if, when you came on board, cause as you say, John was away uh, while he was shooting Uncle Buck pretty much at the same time as this movie was, was happening. I think it was Uncle Buck. I think so. I'm pretty sure it was Uncle Buck. Did that allow you then to make changes and impose yourself on the script in, in any way, or did you treat it very much as a, as a sacred text? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't remember changing much of it. If, if I had a question about a scene, I'd just pick up the phone and call John. And say, listen, nah, 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 and we would just jam together, and he would go, "I wonder if we did it this way," or and I would, you know, I I, I wasn't confident in my writing skills. I mean, I've learned to write since, and and now I'm writing and um, developing. So uh, that that is not uh, an issue. But then, I wanted to make sure that that I was respecting his his writing. Uh, on the other hand, if anything wasn't playing, you know, I could pick up the phone anytime, even when he was on set, he would take the call, we would jam it and I would just adjust it. But I don't, I can't remember a single moment where that was happening, but I'm sure it did happen along the way. Was there much improv on set at all? I mean, I, I've, I'm thinking, for example, of Chevy's incredible rant at the end of the film. Um, I rewatched the film recently with, with subtitles on uh, just to see how, whether the subtitles could words. keep up. Yeah, there's a lot of words. The subtitles could not keep up with Chevy. That is for sure. Uh, was that was that all scripted or did he did he chase it up a little no, bit? No, uh, scripted to the word. And and uh, I I remember in that rant, 
that the entire cast, the reverse, because Chevy is there in the den or living room, ranting and ranting and ranting and kind of pacing and ranting. And the whole family on the reverse is there, all 11 of them. <laughs> anyway, uh, they were. They all had sandwich boards <laughs> of the text. So Chevy could like... And so that would enable and help him to uh, recover the uh, lost words from his brain. There's too much to remember. But uh, so that's how he did. He did it great. That's amazing. I need to now see this on the biggest screen possible and then just pause it frame by frame to see if his eyes are flitting between people. It's it's beautiful. That's, that's a Marlon Brando technique. I like it. But yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but you um, you have as you mentioned there, you have an incredible cast in this film. I mean, we you know, I don't think we even mentioned May Questel and uh, William Hickey. Yeah, who that's turn up, right, Bill Hickey. Sure. Oh my God, they turn up at the end as sort of comedy bombs, and that, that's something that actually happens all the way through the movie, Jeremiah, which is because uh, you do the same thing with cousin Eddie, where you introduce him about half an hour into the movie, and you drop him oh, yeah. in like a almost like a comedy hand grenade. <laughs> comic bomb yeah, yeah. um with uh, bill hickey who um you know i had moved from la uh, from new york to la and bill bill hickey uh is and what well, was a legendary acting uh teacher uh, this is somebody who very serious really kind of amazing influence on new york actors uh, over the years, mm. no many who studied with him. I just thought it was the most bizarre choice on on my side to get Bill Hickey to play it. Uh, you know what I mean? And I'm sure, well, I know he was as surprised to get it, um, the offer that is, and mm-hmm. and fly out and do the part. And it like again, Diane Laz, You know, these are these are John Randall. These are serious actors. When you give a serious actress the ability to make comedy, it's great. John John Hamm is a great example now. You yeah. can't John Hamm is like turns into a great comedic actor no matter what he does. Um, but there's no arguing that he's a great dramatic actor. So and make Estelle, it was just if I can get Betty Boop to be in my movie. <laughs> you know, uh, the the lineage of comic absurdity would like track right up to my set and had no idea if, if she could do it and uh, how much support she would need. But, oh, my God, it was so fun. I mean, she's she's just tremendous in the in the role. The minute she turns up at the house with that voice yeah. of hers saying, "Are we at the airport, Clark?" and uh, these glorious so non sequiturs, beautiful stuff. Yeah, yeah, and you know, people watching the movie now, I, I don't think they know who Aunt Bethany was. They don't know that Mae Castell. That's a good point. You know, is very much uh, a lesson for that for that voice. Betty Boop is like, you know, we're talking about the history of comedic cartoons, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, over the course of cinema. Very, very famous. Mm -hmm. Uh, Almost like Mickey Mouse's first early voices, you know? Yeah, yeah. Steamboat Willie and all of that. So, So I, you know, I was feeling really supported all the way through. I mean, I, there wasn't, there there wasn't um, these, 
you know, these moments where uh, it's possible to go, you know, do I have to second guess studio? Am I going in another direction? Is my producer working against me? Do the actors hate me? <laughs> I, no, uh, you know, we, we were moving in the same direction and, um, and, and it was exciting for me, obviously, because it was my first movie. Second uh, of all, uh, we were shooting on the Warner's back lot for most of the movie mm-hmm. uh, in the spring and summer. So uh, just that was exciting to be on those sound stages where, you know, the, the kind of history of Warner's films were made uh, to go on the back lot, build a house or two to be creating the winter scenes out of sheer cloth. <laughs> that, that's very, very exciting for a kind of a, a newbie director. To kind of experience, and, yeah. and and so every day was was an adventure, um, as difficult as as making a movie is. Did it put you off Christmas at all? Shooting a Christmas movie in the middle of summer? Uh, not really. Um, I always like to get presents, so <laughs> you, know I mean? you can give it to me any time of year. But but no, not really. Was your rap gift by any chance a uh, subscription to the Jello of the Month Club? My rap gift, which is funny you say that, because I've been going through a lot of my archives and storage, as one does in a pandemic, right? <laughs> Got the, that extra time. It's like, I think I'll clean my entire office and organize it. <laughs> I found my rap gift, which was the very first digital camera. No way. Yeah, I wow. still have it. It's a, I think it was a Casio. Uh-huh. And it had a little mini floppy disk. <laughs> it, it shot, you know, maybe two, 200 kilobyte shots, hyper pixelated. But I have it. That was it. That was a rap gift. That that's, it, yeah. that's incredible. Um, there's a lot of things that have lodged in my brain because of this movie over the years. There are things I say, I, I say that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. I say that a lot because of your movie. Um, <laughs> it also introduced me to Meli Kalikimaka. Malikaliki Maka, yes. That great Bing Crosby song. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, where did that come from? Was that something that, that, that you brought to the movie, the, the musical choices yeah. that run all the way through it? Yeah. Um, you know, I worked with, uh, there's a man, Gary Marsh, uh, who died a few years ago. Tremendous man. He, he ran the music department at Warner's. So, you know, I could pick up the phone and go, Gary, you know, send me a thousand <laughs> Christmas songs. That we could, you know, we could get the rights to. Um, and uh, so I, I was constantly auditioning while I was shooting, while I was editing, and certainly even in pre-production, I was auditioning a lot of a lot of uh, songs. There's many songs that didn't make the cut that I loved and, mm-hmm. and many that did that I still love. I just, you know, you know, a lot of the choices um were a pivot on irony, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know. Mavis Staples did a tremendous opening song for us, Christmas yes. Vacation. Um, that was commissioned. That was that was commissioned, yeah. And Gary made that happen. I think Prince was the producer of that. And, yes. And I remember talking, yeah. Um, it, was, it was a very, very exciting musical kind of focus, Angelo Bedlamente, uh, who I'd asked to score it, which is like Twin Peaks, dark, brooding. Of course I'm going to ask... The, you know, the the counter prevailing wind to score a comedy, of course. But it it all worked out um, because people were were you know Jerry Greenberg who had 
cut, you know, all of these really incredible action movies uh, and, and classic kind of 70s movies, not known as a comedic cutter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. came on and uh, I asked him to, to cut it. And, and uh, so it was um, really a, 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 an interesting, I just took the shot of working with people who, like myself, didn't come right out of the comedic culture. If yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but we're able to look at it in a different way. Uh, I wanted animated uh, opening titles. Okay. Um, and I wanted them for a real reason because I wanted to say to the audience, "You're about to watch a cartoon." This is <laughs> no real people were harmed <laughs> during the making of this movie, and so I wanted to just set the tonality straight and differentiate it from the original uh, two movies mm. and. Warner, uh, I remember they said, oh, it's so expensive to do. Do we really need it? We don't. It's so just opening titles and, you know, we're not going to do an animated thing. Just do, you know, and I was like, hmm, okay. So what I did was I, I cut a uh, opening title sequence that looked like it was lifted from a French film right out of the 60s. So it's a black background with white type <laughs> where, where you know, the white type is a little fuzzy and, yes. and just keeps jumping a bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and all the titles were in French. Réalisateur, produit par. <laughs> uh, so it so it looked like one three three. It looked like a, a, a French art movie uh-huh. from the sixties. Like you you and I completely fell in love with this approach because it was still a broad comedy. People were going to come to a broad comedy, and then it would open with like a French art film title, <laughs> and the music I I put on it was uh, a version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town sung by a Jamaican artist who was probably in his 80s (laughs) and probably didn't have any teeth because it was very mumbly. And it was so good. I remember Chevy and I were like, I showed it to him. It was like, this is so fantastic. Oh, my God. When I showed it to the studio, and I was at that point go like, yeah, who needs an animated? You know how much this opening title cost? Like 2000 bucks to put together, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, they went like, we think a cartoon opening title is a great idea. <laughs> Yeah. And we'll commission uh, Mavis Staples. And, That's amazing. I wish I had a copy of that. Uh, yeah, but, I, I think I need to see that more than anything <laughs> right now, so, if you ever do so find mu- it. Yeah, anyway, m- musical choices are um, and have been really, really fun um, for me generally. Yeah. And uh, so I guess uh, just to go back to Meli Kaliki Maka, was that something that, 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 that was part of that 1000 song mixtape essentially that you got? And you just, you just thought, oh, this yeah. is, this is great. I'll, I'll, I'll put it in this well, scene. Well, uh, of course I wanted a Bing Crosby Christmas song. I mean, I, I, I thought that that would be the right tone. So I was looking for very specific things. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's in the attic looking at old films, I wanted something, you know, that was more emotional. You know, so I, I, mm-hmm. I was mixing and matching. Mm. tonalities to either counterpoint or support what was going on on the screen as one does melikalikimaka was is a, it's a commonly uh it's a popular song i mean it's not you know may not be that popular in 
uh, in Britain, but <laughs> but in Hawaii, it's very popular. <laughs> Uh, I just thought that have and 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 doing a uh, um, a Hawaiian uh, chorus sung by Bing Crosby in that particular scene, I, I just thought had all the trappings of a perfect unity uh, for the movie that I was trying to make. Especially that scene as well, where it's it's a it's a fantasy scene. It's it's uh, yeah. the one moment when fantasy really intrudes upon the movie, which is fairly realistic. You know, maybe some slapstick elements aside, the sled ride. Sure is perhaps not realistic. <laughs> I'm guessing no matter Possibly how you know, no matter how good that lubricant is, I'm guessing you don't go down the hill that quickly. Uh, just to go back to the idea of, of the animated titles, setting the audience up for the, the notion that they're watching a, a live-action cartoon, that comes into play with Chevy, who is so good at slapstick, whether he's on the ladder or whether he's on the roof with the with the with the lights or the or the sled bit, of course, or the 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 planks hit him in the face. Well, yeah, the the planks that that's a, a great piece. Uh, that was a bit of improv. And by the way, to the point of improv, we always shot the script, and then of course we went out there and and let the actors run. I mean, all of this stuff from Randy Quaid going, he goes. <laughs> That's all in improv. So the actors really kind of uh, contributed a huge amount as we kind of dressed up. So we'd shoot the, the script, the book, and and then kind of go off on tangents and have fun with it. So the plank wasn't an idea on that set? Was the, well, um, no, because I had to do – I wanted – because I was making a comedy, I said, I'm not going to make a comedy unless somebody steps on a board and gets hit in the head. Because <laughs> – I, I know that was that was my my uh, contribution, and of course, I wanted it to happen several times. That differentiates it somewhat. Yes, you know where he steps on it. It's like oh god, yeah. turns around, steps on it. You know, so it's the triumvirate of of comedy three three beats. But that's just a classic comedy trope, right? Yeah, man steps on a board, he gets hit in the head. Yeah, it's always funny. It's always I don't know funny. why. It's always I funny. I don't know why. And one of the most famous jokes of, of all time is in The Simpsons, which is uh, when Sideshow Bob, I don't know if you're aware of this, but he steps on one rake, gets hit in the head, <laughs> then steps on another rake, gets hit in the head, then another rake, and then pulls back to, to reveal that he's in the middle of a whole, uh, a whole load of rakes. And it goes on for about <laughs> a minute. It's just genius. But you prefigure that. You predate that with this, with Clark being hit twice. Yeah. So there you yeah. go. Hats off. Yeah. Hats off. And, and <laughs> Chevy as well, I guess, is someone who is well known for his physical comedy and his prowess of physical comedy. You know, what he did on SNL back in the, back in the, the first season of yeah, that yeah. show. He's, he's really fantastic uh, instincts for um, slapstick and physical comedy. Mm. I mean, he played Gerald Ford. Yes. Way back when. Yes. So, um, you know, and Gerald Ford was a master at physical comedy. I think. <laughs> so. And uh, I just want to ask as well about Cousin Eddie and Randy, uh, Randy Newman? Randy Quaid. Randy Newman's not in this movie. Uh, and Randy Quaid as well. Because again, that idea that he's a comedy bomb, that he gets dropped into the movie and he's, he's operating on a slightly different level to everyone else. Uh, what, what sort of yeah. collaborations did you have with, with Randy in terms of... Oh, it was just, it was just so fun. I mean, you could just, you could just wind him up, let him go, and it was gold, gold, gold. Uh, it's funny because Beverly is the straight man to Chevy, and then Chevy's the straight man to Randy. Yes. 
And in a way, Randy's a straight man to make Estelle and Bill Hickey. Uh, so <laughs> they they do change up uh, over the course um, of the scenes. But w- with Randy, he loved playing Cousin Eddie. I mean, you could just tell, you could, right? I mean, mm. there's such joy in that performance. Yeah. Uh, I just remember that I, I, I had asked Wardrobe to find a a dicky right and uh with a, a you know kind of a trans loose and transparent white sweater so you could actually see the dicky through I, that was something that i i thought was uh a good idea well yeah. when he put it on he just like he looked at himself and he like it, it, it was like comedic armor you, <laughs> you know you put that on and you you know, you walk around that room and of course, you know, you, you can't go wrong. So working with, with, with Randy was, was a joy. And Randy, you know, uh, had again, amazing dramatic actor, mm-hmm. amazing comedic actor. God knows what he's doing now. You know, I only mm-hmm. know what I read in the papers. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think he is just brilliant. He's fantastic, and uh, I love the way that you introduce him as well. You have that lovely shot. It's a really beautiful, heartfelt moment where Clark has finally managed to get the lights to work in the house, and he's he's you know receiving the plaudits of his family. Perhaps not his father-in-law, E.G. Marshall. I love that bit where he goes, the lights aren't <laughs> twinkling. Yeah, thanks for noticing, Art. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for telling me. And then suddenly Cousin Eddie has just shown up, and I love the way you do that. Uh, can you Do you remember why, why you decided to stage it in that way? Well, yeah. I mean, in a way, it was, even though, you know, um, you can't get inside of Chevy's head, but I wanted the audience to to have the reveal of Cousin Eddie the way Clark would have the reveal of Cousin Eddie. And so as, as the camera would move um, along the, you know, the patter of the family, you know, it's like, you're not twinkling, Clark. <laughs> right, that kind of thing. <laughs> and then as it just kind of moves and we discover a brand new character. Yeah. And I think he says something like, It's it's real beautiful or something <laughs> something like that. Yeah. yeah. A- and with that, uh, and then the reaction of Chevy to that. So just to have that surprise and then go back to Chevy is like, oh what happened? <laughs> Uh, and you know the audience is kind of waiting for it too. You kind of feel that, yeah. And so uh, it, it was a deliberate way of introducing him in somewhat of a surprising way, though tipped, but yeah. al- a- allowed him his opening reveal. It's it's fantastic, and I, I've just got to ask you about one last cousin Eddie moment before I, I, I wrap this up, um, which is Shitter was full. What do you remember about shooting that? Oh, well, it's shot in two different, two different times, really, on the schedule. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the exterior, mm-hmm. right, which was just like, holy shit, can you believe what we're doing? Yeah, <laughs> add more brown to the <laughs> – yeah, it was very practical because <laughs> we get them in wardrobe, that wardrobe with the little bathrobe and, yeah. and, and, and just the pump. And then, like – Let's go. And like, you know, you put Randy in that situation. It's so great. He just like, you know, he disappears into the scene. 
So that's great. Not a lot of work for me, honestly. <laughs> but on the inside where I'm shooting them looking at at him through the window. Yeah. And that was done on the inside of the sound stage rather than on the back lot where okay. we shot the the Randy part of it. That was a particularly difficult day. Uh, there was a lot of tension on the set. Beverly and I were were really at each other's throats. Chevy had taken up a sort of a defensive posture for me, mm-hmm. and that kind of translated to him fighting with Beverly. And so what I really remember was trying to just tell both of them just to like, don't worry about it. You know, we can, Beverly and I can fight. It's okay. We'll, we'll get through this, but mm. you don't have to come to my defense and just to calm the actors down. And I don't even know if they remember this, but they were really hostile to each other uh, during the kind of final makeup uh, touch-ups and the lighting. And when they finally got on set and it was like just steamy. And then as soon as I called action, they just like, right into their characters as if nothing happened, you know, and then cut and they walked away. So I remember it very, very well. It's, it's a scene that I find uh, somewhat disquieting uh, to watch because Mm. there was a lot of emotional churn that day. And yet watching the scene None of it is in the scene. You don't feel that in the scene at all. And that's a tribute to how professional both of them are and were. Once action's called, put everything to one side. And then once cut's called, that would be an interesting place to be and see what happens. But you do something really interesting in a scene, Jeremiah, as well, which is you... um. Uh, when you cut outside to Cousin Eddie, your camera is, it it, it roves. And it, there's also that scene where the uh, the elder relatives, the, the, you know, the Clark and Ellen's mothers and fathers turn up. And you really capture that horror of what it's like when family descends upon you for Christmas and suddenly you have all these relatives saying inappropriate things. And I love the way you cut that scene and I love the way you, you, know, you have your camera roving in and, and finding those little moments of... Of, of of comedy and drama, um, which again is is a different approach from your approach than the rest of the movie. Was that something that you remember exactly what prompted that? Uh, yeah, I wanted it to be. Uh, I wanted it to feel somewhat chaotic and a little bit out of control. Uh, I think I I used uh, sort of a sound story, both musically and sonically, to kind of turn it a little bit sour. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to feel somewhat out of control. That, that was my my instinct, that it was all happening too fast. Yes. Like, yes. What is happening? <laughs> yes. who, who, who are these people? Why are they uh, attacking me? Um, and, uh, and then, you know, button that with the cat um, in the box. <laughs> the cat in the box. So like, oh, my word. Chevy was really great in that because obviously he's, you know, there's an empty box, right? When we're on, and he was like, that was very improved and beautifully done. With just a squealing cat out of the post. It's, it's, it's yeah. wonderful. It's beautiful stuff. So I've got to ask you, to, to wrap this up, I've got to ask you, whenever you saw the film recently with your granddaughter, who is how old, by the way? Seven. seven. 
okay, so she's okay for this film. That's, that's all good, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shitter was, shitter was full, maybe earmuffs for that, but otherwise otherwise it's fine. I think she's heard worse. I, 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 I imagine she has. Seven years old, I was saying worse. So, yeah, I can imagine. But um, yeah. when you watched the film again, what stood out from you as you were watching it objectively? What were the, the peaks for you? And were there troughs for you as well? Things that you would do differently? I think the peaks were really no different than how I felt when I first um, locked the picture, which was land those emotional moments, um, even in the complete absurdity of such broad comedy. Make sure that when a moment between two people or between the family, what really creates the family Mm -hmm. is... um, that emotional need uh, to be part of a family and what that means. And I was hyper-conscious of it when I made the film, when I cut the film, when I screened the film, and then years later, now it's been like 30 years or mm-hmm. more, mm-hmm. I, I continue to be happy that those scenes have landed yeah. uh, appropriately. You know, are there things that, that would have been different had we had CG, maybe, you know. Uh, but, you know, that was made then. And, uh, you know, you just plunge in, do your best work, hope for the best. You know, <laughs> you know, every, every director will tell you that. I mean, it's not like you get to control everything all the time in a perfect way. You try to make the best move you have under the conditions you are working in, uh, both physically and financially and uh, with managing the egos. And when something turns out well, you know, uh, you take full credit for it, <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> but, but, but really it's such a, I mean, you know, the, the contributions of everyone on that team yeah. uh, were palpable. So. Uh, my my applaud to my my crew and my cast uh, years ago. Those who are yeah. uh, still remaining with us. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, you uh, you did include a clip from "It's a Wonderful Life." Uh, I wonder, was that you perhaps putting that in as a way of saying, I hope one day my film is also considered to be a classic, or were you tempting fate or <laughs> tempting the gods in the some more way? More like tempting fate. <laughs> I, I I think it would. <laughs> Yeah, no, never did I expect this to even be mentioned in the same um, list of, mm-hmm. of, of a movie like that. But I was conscious that I was making a movie in the tradition of Christmas movies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so I, I, I would feel, well, if I have a movie on TV, I mean, what is it going to be? You know, is it going to be Die Hard or, you know... Uh, is it going to be something that the family would have been watching? So they would have been watching that, I think. They would indeed. They would indeed. Uh, and on that note, Jeremiah, to uh, to paraphrase Clark W. Griswold, you did it. Thanks, sir. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. Bye. Okay, so that was Jeremiah S. Chechik. The S, I presume, stands for squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can already assume. And now it's time for us to talk about this movie, which I absolutely adore. Where do you guys stand on Christmas Vacation? It's a corker, isn't it? I, I think this is Chevy Chase at his best as a leading man. 
Um, I love him in Free Migos. That might be my favorite Chevy. But as a uh, as a guy doing his own thing, as the f- as a frontman for a film, mm-hmm. I think this is my favorite Chevy. This and Funny Farm, the very underrated Funny Farm. <laughs> quite a similar, it's genuinely good and quite similar. Um, it's kind of him against the elements. Good right. double bill. Interesting. Of course, if you're going to you know defer to anybody on this, you defer to the author of Wild and Crazy Guys, exactly. a man who has seen more Chevy Chase films than it is surely good for him. More than Chevy Chase, probably. <laughs> Definitely more than Chevy Chase has seen, or indeed remembers making. This is this is such a great film. Great performance. Hellspells, where do you stand on it? I am pro, probably slightly less evangelical than the pair Get of you. Get out! But, but not, you know, anti, just, just slightly less pro. I feel like it's it's got incredible comic set pieces. I had forgotten some of them actually. I went back and watched this a couple of days ago, and I oh, had that's nice. yeah, and I had forgotten the the opening, the whole opening bit in the car. Actually, didn't mm-hmm. ring a bell at all. I was like, hmm, don't remember this being here. Even I slightly. was thinking about that. I I had totally forgotten that the opening five minutes of this film rivals any Fast and Furious movie for <laughs> high octane car action. <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely I mean, off the hook dual wishes you know so uh no but uh, yeah there, there are little bits like that that completely slipped my mind but equally bits like the lights uh, lighting the house and the squirrel in the tree and cutting open the turkey that have stayed with me ever since i first saw it uh so yeah i do like it i i, I think my big problem is this may be unfair i don't think his character is entirely consistent. On one hand, he's this kind of Ted Lasso-ish, incredible optimist, this kind of indefatigable, almost innocent. And on the other hand, he's still quite Chevy Chase and he's quite acerbic at times. And, you know, like that we bit where- We could take multitudes, Helen. We I could guess he multitudes. Does. I guess I'm just not giving him credit. He's, he's like an extremely horny Mr. Bean, isn't he? Like he's- uh, yeah. He's got all the slapstick, but then he's he's slightly pervy at moments as well. Uh, maybe mm. uncomfortably mm. so. Oh, very very pervy at moments, yeah. But I I, I like I prefer this uh, model of Chevy Chase performance to you know you get two kinds. You get him where everything's going wrong and he's basically just getting hit in the hit in the face by a plank. Sometimes mm. literally, but sometimes metaphorically. And there are other ones where he's the slick, cool guy. Yeah. And they made quite a lot of those with him coming off of SNL, mm. and he's quite unlikable when he's meant to be the cool guy that you want to be. Although I know a lot of people love Fletch. Oh, Fletch is great. And seems like old times as well. That great film he made with uh, Goldie Hawn and Charles Grodin and Neil Simon uh, screenplay. He spends half the movie under a bed. I'm not such a fan of that one. I really like that film. Although I haven't seen it in years, in fairness. I didn't have to rewatch it whilst I was writing the book. So if I I had, I probably would have found my attitude being somewhat discoloured. It's no Under the Rainbow. It's no... (laughs) What's that dreadful one he made with Billy Friedkin? Deal of the century. Oh, deal of the century. It's okay. It's not dreadful. Okay. It's 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 a curio because it's him being a straight man, um, and not okay. not trying to be funny. Um, well, but yeah. a, he kind of is that in this, and I think there's a really, you know, I actually was wondering how we could possibly fill out 45 minutes talking about Christmas Vacation, but we're making a pretty good start here. You know? <laughs> there's, not, there's not a lot of like, thematic stuff to get into, really. I guess mm. well, maybe there is, but um, you know, it's kind of interesting in terms of. You're right. Chevy Chase presenting Chevy Chase in terms of his comedic persona at this point. It was you know, 89 and yeah. Fletch Lives came out the same year. And uh, so he was doing the smug thing, but also the kind of homely family man that Clark is in this movie. But it's also an interesting juxtaposition with the previous two vacation movies. Uh, mm. So in European vacation, he's pretty much full on 
buffoon, you know, the typical American idiot abroad who has just absolutely no clue what's going on at any point. Uh, he's always got this idea. There's always this idea through the vacation movies that Clark will do anything for his family and he's driven by that. Yes, this is true. But in vacation as well, he's a little bit opportunistic. He, you know, is fully up for having an affair with uh, Christy Brinkley's character. A little bit of that is preserved in the horniness with mm-hmm. the the, um, the lingerie, the lingerie saleswoman, sales yeah. yes. But by and large, this is almost a reset button for the franchise. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, Cousin Eddie uh, carries over from vacation. But otherwise, the recasting of the kids each time, I think, means that none of the movies really have take place in the continuity. So this is a reset button on Clark, and they reset him as this kind of wholesome Jimmy Stewart type figure. And it's actually quite interesting for me watching this movie because he's brilliant at all the slapstick stuff he's brilliant at all all the buffoonish stuff because that's what he's great at but it also showed that he could do straight ahead straight down the middle uh, the straight man uh, you know as Jeremiah Chechik pointed out he Mm. becomes the straight man in the movie once cousin Eddie shows up and then once (laughs) once Aunt Bethany uh, shows up as well. Everyone becomes a straight man to her as well. So mm. it's an escalating Russian doll in reverse, but of straight men. But this shows that he could have done so much more in his career. He had more range than I think people were willing to give him credit for. That's a very long-winded way of saying I liked it. He could have played. <laughs> he could have played Forrest Gump, according to Chevy Chase. I've not heard this from anyone else, but he claims <laughs> that he was offered uh, Forrest Gump and turned it down, which is wow. interesting. They see that I can't see. I can't see that. I can't but. see him with a box of chocolates. He wouldn't be able to open it without falling over and the squirrel would have the squirrel would have got the chocolates immediately off that bench. Yeah, huh. this is true. I mean, like in in terms of sheer co- uh, talent, comic timing, uh, yeah, he could he could play anything. There's no question, but I I I wonder if he has and and he can play warmth, I guess here. I think that's what maybe has gotten lost in some of his recent work. I mean, the, at the start of lockdown, I watched uh, community again from start to mm. finish, and and you know it's notable how good he is at being, uh, like you say, kind of a dickhead, like a smug git in that. But you know the joke is on him generally because he doesn't have that much to be smug about, as it turns out. But he also plays the emotional beats well when he gets them. Um, I think I think maybe he was just too difficult for too long a time to have the career he deserved. I think it's not a matter of people not being sure he could play it. I think it's more. Maybe, you know, and he's, I think, talked about this himself. Mm. It's more a case of him being more difficulty than people were willing to put up with. I think he had other issues as well, didn't he? Mm. He had uh, addictions that he had to get past in his yeah. in his career, which made him mm. difficult to hire. When he did try and branch out, for example, with uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, it didn't really work. Mm. He tried to play a kind of action hero in that, again, very earnest. And I think he, you know, I think John Carpenter said in the past that they were basically taking jokes out of the script, which yeah. is not really what you want to do with Chevy Chase. But I, I think this movie shows that there were more strings to his bow than perhaps the rest of his filmography might suggest. Yeah, it was kind of his his last huge hit, I think. It was the last true mega hit for, for yeah. Chevy Chase and the last kind of defining thing, which is a shame because it's really fun. It felt it must have felt like a huge comeback when it came mm. out, but it didn't really go anywhere. He had his ill-fated TV show. Uh, check out an episode. Amazing. And yeah, I don't know. I just feel like this performance gets the it's a blend of the two sides of him that people that he can kind of do well where he's the buffoon he's the moron but then also you get these little flashes of him saying hilarious things and you know that that scene with his boss where he's saying kiss my ass kiss his ass Mm -hmm. kiss your ass it's great people love him because he's the wise ass like that and you get little flashes of uh, some amazing one-liners in this 
Yeah, but that, mm. I mean, that's the one that didn't really fit for me with Clark Griswold. Do you know what I mean? That, that felt more like Chevy Chase, and that's great, but it didn't feel quite in keeping with the rest of the character. It, did, it didn't feel like that guy would hang up 25,000 lights on his house. Well, maybe that's the anger coming out. Not to get too maybe. deep into Clark Griswold. This is turning into like a, a you know a deep psychoanalysis no, do it. Do it. of Clark Griswold. But <laughs> yeah, you know, this is a guy who tries, tries, tries. That's like his defining quality. Is mm. he tries his absolute hardest all the time to pull True. off the everything has to be perfect, and obviously it never is. So he's gonna get angry, and he's gonna <laughs> occasionally lash out and probably kill, probably kill. <laughs> we don't see it on screen, but there are bodies in in that garage. You know, he's got his he's got his mask on. <laughs> he does. The key to Clark, I think, is that he's insane. <laughs> right. And he's insane at the beginning of the movie. Right. And the front, the mask he puts on all the way through the movie is of Mr. Domestic, Mr. You know, Mr. Domesticated, Mr. You know, husband of the year, Mr. Father of the year. But he's he's absolutely pathologically, certifiably insane right from the beginning. That's why he drags his family out of the middle of nowhere to take a massive Christmas tree. Is why he takes all these completely nutty risks with the tree, cutting the tree inside the house and, you know, and he and and slowly but surely the mask slips. So that's why I'm going to read Clark in this, <laughs> that he is, he's insane from the off. If you want to say that this is a continuation of the previous two movies, he's insane from the off and he slowly unravels. And so it's the real Clark who says, you know, kiss my ass, kiss his ass, kiss your ass, right. happy Hanukkah. That's the real Clark. The real Clark is the guy at the end who does the absolutely incredible rant mm-hmm. about Frank Shirley. And it kind of makes a little bit of sense once you see, you know, okay. the rest of the family. This is one of those that. Clark Kent Superman situations, yes. like as disgusting Kill yes. Bill. Okay. Yes. So the, the whole Friday the 13th uh, bit is suddenly making sense because I never <laughs> understood that bit. So weird. <laughs> He's he's killed before, he'll kill again, he's letting the mask slip. Todd and Margot, and I have to say, you know, I love this movie, but those bits have never worked for me. The bits with Nicholas Guest and Julia Louis-Dreyfus have, have never worked for me. They're so clunky, but, you know, well, I didn't bring that up with Jeremiah's <laughs> judging for obvious reasons. They're really clunky, Jeremiah, and I think you could have done better there. Uh, they're, they're only, I think, useful in terms of showing what other people think of Clark, in a way. But also, you know, in that's Julie Louis Dreyfus in a movie when she was young. What the hell's going on? And then, oh my god! And then you realize you do a bit of deep dive and realize that's Christopher Guest's brother as well. Ah. I think they're funny. I think they're funny. I I love an eighties movie yuppie couple. Um, why not? I think they're great. That's so much hair wax on him. It's uh, he is he is highly flammable. And so much body on her. Oh my god, the the, the hair. I mean, it's yes, enormous. yes, yeah. yes. Yes, oh my word. Uh, it's another one. It's interesting because I don't like Home Alone at all. And I think I've, mm-hmm. I've said this in the podcast before. I've certainly it, yeah. said it on Twitter. But this is a, the latest in a long line. Clark W. Griswold is the latest in a long line of John Hughes protagonists who are, you know, upper middle class, mm-hmm. doing very, very well. And yet, he's not punchable in the way that I think Kevin is in Home Alone. Oh my God, he's a where child. I'm completely on the side of Harry and Marv all the way through. <laughs> he's not punchable in the way that Ferris Bueller, who has been reincarnated as Stephen Miller, is in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's not punchable in that way. Yeah, even Kevin's dad in Home Alone, who's clearly up to his neck and no good. <laughs> How can you afford that house? You know, but we're somehow on Clark's side all the way through, despite that. Yeah, he's much mm. more likable than Neil, the Steve Martin character in Planes, Trains, who also has a you know has a really epic you know 
tantrum breaks at one point and starts mm. screaming and dropping f-bombs but um mm. yeah he is likable he is likable yeah he because you do believe that he just wants the best for his fa- for his family like that you, you do believe that all the way through and in, in a way that you maybe don't of particularly steve martin in place trains automobiles and it's you know it's subverting that that sort of i think someone calls him the last true family man at one point and mm. you know you get how many movies do you get where everything's perfect at christmas and it looks effortless and it's kind of the movie is saying, well, that's not true. That's just like a, that's a myth that it can be like this, that actually mm. it's a lot harder and they're showing this guy's torment at trying to live up to that like ideal. The only thing is, and not to get on my regular horse about this, most of the, most of the labor of making Christmas perfect generally falls on women. Mm-hmm. Like okay. most yeah. of the labor of making sure, you know, the perfect food is done, most of the present buying, most of the card sending. Helen, you've never tried my eggnog. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of that is generally done by women. And so, you know, when you make, I don't know, if you're making a man the, the, the center of that particular story, it just, maybe this is just what Hollywood does. Is it saying that men are rubbish at it? But, but he's not doing any of that. That's all getting mm. done. Presumably. Oh, he's he's not on the fall for that, but still, no. because Catherine, cousin Eddie's wife, does the the turkey. That's yeah. because you know that's it's not because it's because she's just a car wreck of a human being. Mm. But you know that's why that goes terribly wrong. But uh, but but by and large, I think you're right. Ellen in this movie is the calm, stoic centre at the, at the heart of everything, at the heart of the storm uh, that is Clark. And uh, you know, Jeremiah Chechik said basically that you know during the filming of it. Beverly D'Angelo wasn't that happy with mm. what she had to do in the well, movie. Yeah. And she is not really given an awful lot to do in the film. I think that's this one focuses on Clark more than any of the, the previous mm. films and doesn't really give her any great comedic bits of business, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, I mean, she's r- literally mm. sort of being supportive. She figures out the light thing, I guess, which was which is the closest this film gets to breaking my heart when he's when he's put all this effort into putting up these lights all over the house and mm. then he gathers everybody in for this big unveiling and they don't go on like that genuinely does I find it quite tough to watch <laughs> but uh, and she mm. kind of figures out what's wrong and, and solves that problem eventually but other than that I mean what does she mm. really get to do she has a lovely moment with her mother and the film is really good at the, the sort of frustrations of Christmas and how mm. terrible it is having relatives in your house uh, <laughs> and, you know, how awful they are, all are when they come over and they, you know, you have your routine and then suddenly here they are snoring and asking you inappropriate questions and all sorts. So she has a lovely moment in the kitchen where she's with Audrey and she starts lighting up a cigarette in frustration because it's all too much. And her mother has some sort of sixth sense from the next room goes, mm. Ellen, are you smoking in there? And and she, her frustration of that is really fun. But mm. but by and large, she is there to to tut and raise an eyebrow and to and to Offer be the comfort. voice of reason. Yeah. 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 Which is which which is a shame. But, you know, everything else is so damn funny, guys, that uh-huh. I, you know, I just I find myself focusing on that. And when I, I said this to the, the director as well, I said this to Jeremiah uh, Chechik, when I first saw this movie, the, I was drawn towards all the slapstick stuff. And I still am to an extent mm. when I when I rewatch this movie, which is once every year, uh, July 31st, uh, <laughs> like clockwork. <laughs> really, no, really see in Christmas, idiot. right? You've got to watch it on June the 20th. <laughs> you have gone full cousin Eddie. What am I doing? Um, but whenever I watch this movie, I still I still think the uh, the the sled going down the hill. I remember mm. where I was when I watched this movie for the first time. <laughs> and I remember losing it. Like uncontrollable laughter 
for I, I missed the first the next three to four minutes of the movie because I was laughing so hard at that. Thank God I was watching that in VHS. And I could rewind it back. But that's, that's the dream, isn't it? When you're a, when you're a kid, you just want to get on an amazing uh, toboggan or whatever and just pelt it down a hill. I was, I used to get bin bags <laughs> at school. We used to I don't know why I'm talking about this, but we used to get black bin bags and go up to the steepest hill and then go down. But nothing was as awesome as watching them do it in this yeah. film. Like it's just the ultimate. You want to do it, and also it's terrifying. Yeah, they kind of riff on that a little bit in Godmothered uh, recently. I think it's become a, a bit of a thing. But uh, yeah, I was wildly jealous. We had very small yeah. hills in my town, very small, and it just wasn't enough to kind of go on a sort of six yeah. foot rise. On, yeah, on they a had a lot of trouble lid. with the snow filming this. I think it was like a Die Hard 2 situation where they had to just keep moving around and they'd get somewhere with loads of snow and then it would melt overnight and then they'd have <laughs> to like pick up everything, load the trucks and go somewhere else and then that would melt and they were having an absolute nightmare with it. But it was worth it because mm-hmm. it has got glorious snow. And I think they filmed it in summer as well. So they did, yeah. the, the, the street is all fake snow. Uh, yeah. So it was actually swelteringly hot. Oh my goodness. Movie uh, magic, folks. Movie do you guys magic. get excited that the house from uh, Lethal Weapon is next door to theirs? Is it? It's Murtaugh's uh, house from Lethal Weapon. <gasps> they filmed on the same street. Oh, my goodness. At Warner Brothers. That's and, incredible. Uh, yeah. So it's the Christmas street. It is indeed. It you can is hear, the you Christmas can, If street. you listen carefully, you can hear a sax uh, solo just occasionally <laughs> drifting from that house. For, uh, that would have been amazing. Instead of Todd and Margot, it would have been Roger Murtaugh and his wife. <laughs> What a, they could have done that. This could have been the, the pre-MCU. This could have been the first shared universe. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Can you imagine the tree comes through the window and, and he just shakes his head and goes, I'm too old for this shit. I'm too old for this <laughs> shit. And he, he, he walks over to Clark's house and he shoots him and goes, you know, <laughs> just been revoked. I'm too old for the squirrel. <laughs> I'm too old for this Christmassy shit. That'd have been amazing. I got to say, I have a special appreciation for this film as one of the few people who has been subject to a squirrel attack in their own home. That's um, true. Yeah, this is this I, is this absolutely is, true. This is not a comedy for me. This is real life, and uh, this is this is a documentary. I uh, yeah, I was living in Finsbury Park, and one Sunday morning, I woke up at uh, like seven a.m. or something uncharacteristically early, and I'm hearing this scrabbling around in my room, and I was like, "What the hell is happening?" And uh, a squirrel jumped on the end of my bed, and then back off again, and then ran off elsewhere in the flat and there was a squirrel it come through the window oh my god and it was scrabbling I didn't even know they, they could read <laughs> was, let alone play board they games they were pretty basic three letter words but it was uh, <laughs> but it was doing win its with best three letter words you know get the right letter on the right triple word score you, you know yeah, you're so it was all like nuts twig um, yes but eat, no I mean food feed me <laughs> kill kill yeah. Um, but yeah no I mean this happened this, this, this happened so I, I relate to Clark and it is a terrifying ordeal I think we all relate to Clark, don't we? Apart from the people who don't. But, you know, <laughs> is it, it would be worrying if we, if we related to Cousin Eddie. <laughs> yeah, that would be... I mean, how do you guys feel about the whole Randy Quaid thing? Like, can you still enjoy a Randy Quaid performance at, oh, this, yeah. at this point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, if anything, it's enhanced. I mean, yeah, he, he, yeah he's, he's, if anything, made himself look more like a method actor than he perhaps once did. <laughs> I don't see this as National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I see this as a prequel to <laughs> Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure. That's what, that's, what, that's what this is. It's like, get past this boring Clark W. Griswold shit. Get get to Cousin Eddie. There we go. Half an hour in. Thank that's you. That's what we're waiting for. No. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you use a microwave, it pisses his pants. That's what we want. Before we get before we get back to Cousin Eddie, like uh, one of the great triumphs of this film is that they managed to spell Griswold right in the credits, which is something they do not do in European <laughs> vacations. They don't, do they? On the passports. 
No, I actually, I interviewed Matty Simmons, um, producer of European Vacation, and I asked him about the fact Griswold is spelt wrong, and he didn't know. No one had ever <gasps> mentioned it to him before. Oh, no. And it was, one of those, it was one of those awful interview situations where he just sounded really, like, crestfallen. Um, oh, he was no. like, really? And then he looked it up, and he was like, oh. And uh, But yeah, they spell it uh, Griswold with an A. And then it, oh, no. in this film, it triumphantly is restored to O status. Quite right. This is only interesting to pedants like me, so I apologise for bringing this up. <laughs> no, that's, it's huge for me because that that throws me every time I watch European Vacation. So every time I watch it, I have to burn my copy in disgust, and then I have to buy another <laughs> copy. It's a really expensive hobby. I can absolutely enjoy Randy Quaid' performance uh, now, uh, even though you know he has he's experiencing difficulties, shall we yes, say? Yes, he has. But he's fantastic in this. He's as I said to. Jeremiah Jechik. He's like a comedy hand grenade that's just thrown into the movie. I love the way he's introduced. I love the way that, you know, Clark, who's finally had a moment of triumph, is walking along the line of his family members, getting a little bit of shade thrown at him by E.G. Marshall. And my God, what a cast this movie has. We'll, we'll get that in a second. Yeah. And then there's just, I don't know, Cousin Eddie and, uh, and, and, and Catherine. And I love Chevy Chase's double take in this moment. It's just so good. You know, the way they're, they're already mid-conversation and then he's like, hang on a second. Eddie? <laughs> Catherine? What? What the hell? It's just, it's, it's a masterclass in comedic acting. Mm. And, and it is, I mean, it's over the top and it's ridiculous. And, uh, you know, social services should definitely be called for those poor <laughs> children. But, you know, within the context of the movie, it's perfect. Yeah. Mm. And he's so mm. good. He's so much funnier in this movie than he was in National Lampoon's Vacation, for mm. me, anyway. Mm. And so, mu mm. so much more memorable. I don't know whether it's because of the ridiculous get-ups that he has, that lovely sweater that he has when he knocks over the when he's drinking the eggnog and the, the way his hair has got the sort of Superman <laughs> the forelock the S curl on his hair that's been brill groomed within an inch of his life I you know I don't know whether it's that or whether the, the fact that he's just so brilliantly written it's very very hard to write stupid so well I think <laughs> but there's there's little things like um, the moment where they're, they're it's the night before Christmas, which I believe is called Christmas Eve, and Clark's going, "Hey kids, I hear that uh, Santa's sleigh has been spotted," and all the kids get really excited, and then cousin Eddie just goes, Are "You serious, Clark?" <laughs> it's just like just glorious, glorious stuff. It's it's just the best incarnation of of the nightmare guest, like just someone you don't want when when you're trying to make everything perfect, and you've got this absolutely insane person turning up, and just there's no controlling him at all. <laughs> I really want to see a cousin Eddie's island adventure. Is that what it's called, Island Adventure? I've not seen that one. It's, it's it's I think it's officially called National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation Two: Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure. Oh wow. It was written by Maddie Simmons. Uh, I wonder how he spelled Griswold in the script. <laughs> how does he spell cousin Eddie? <laughs> yeah, precisely. It's also, I've never seen it. I will say I've never seen it, but it is the first and the only vacation movie in which a Griswold child reprises their role. Ooh. So Dana Barron, who, who played Audrey in European Vacation, comes back to appear in this one mm. as well. That's a stunning fact. Um, I, I, a stunning fact, indeed. Um, I, I hope the island is Alcatraz. I haven't seen it, but I, I, I just hope the film is him in a cell. It's where he belongs. I've got a stunning fact. Um, okay, I mean, this yes. is a massive tangent away from where we are, so I apologise. But um, the, the truck you see at the beginning of this film that tailgates mm -hmm. the Griswolds and, and, and causes them some uh, trouble on the road is the same truck that Kurt Russell drives in Overboard. And I'm not Whoa. finished with this fact. This is about to get more stunning. That truck is also in They Live. Whoa! What? It's the That's same recycling. truck. Recycling. Recycling, guys. Recycle. Yeah, it explains that line of dialogue. 
Yeah, um, explains a bit where Clark finds a magical sunglasses and lets him see all the aliens. This film might be set in the same universe as they live. That would be amazing. <laughs> that would explain some stuff. Is this headcanon now? Is this what the kids call it? Headcanon? I feel like this is more Patton Oswald's filibuster, to be honest. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, but hey-ho. hey-ho. Uh, what, enough of me banging on about this movie. What, what do you guys like about it? Or not like about it? I can, I can take criticism of it, but if you criticise it, you're dead to me. I was just going to ask, I mean, do we think these are the definitive Griswold kids? They're certainly the most famous mm. pairing, right? Anthony Michael Hall is in European yeah. Vacation. Mm-hmm. Ethan Embry is uh-huh. in Vegas Vacation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, in Vacation, which is actually brilliant, uh, if you haven't seen mm. these kind of reboot slash sequel, uh, then we're talking Ed Helms and Leslie Mann. So, no, but the uh, kids. Yeah, I mean, oh, the kids. Oh, yeah. Rusty and Rusty. Rusty. Yeah. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But mm. yeah, Johnny Galecki, famous, of course, because he's in Roseanne. And then Juliette Lewis, <laughs> yeah, famous for being Jeffrey Lewis's daughter. So yes, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on this. That's what they're famous for. That's what okay. they're famous for. Do you know anything else that they're famous for? Name um, one other project that Johnny Galecki or Juliette Lewis are famous for. Whip it. I beg your pardon. <laughs> I beg your pardon. It's a different not podcast. That kind of, not that kind oh of podcast. Word. Oh my god. <laughs> oh boy. What else are they famous for? Give me one thing. What Big Bang Theory? California with a K. Mm. All right. Okay. Accepted. <laughs> accepted. Challenge accepted. I think they're the definitive, uh, the definitive kids. Yeah. I'm just going to say yes. I haven't got strong, strong views, but I'm. I. I don't think there's any beating them. Weirdly, Rusty's younger in this than he is in National European <laughs> 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 Vacation. I, I don't think continuity was a major feature uh, with respect to the kids. It blew my mind in the uh, in talking to Jeremiah S. Chechik that he admitted that he had never seen Vacation or European Vacation. <laughs> And still he, still hasn't. Hasn't. he still hasn't. Still hasn't. <laughs> I wonder if it's like William Freakin. We're talking about him a lot in this podcast, but um, uh, he he refuses to see French Connection Two. Just won't watch it. <laughs> Just won't. He's like, mm. it can't be any good. It's gonna be a terrible film. And he's like, no, it's really good, Billy. You should check it out. No nope. shit. Okay. It's like talking to James Dyer, but with better hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got quite good hair actually. Yeah, Billy Freakin. He really does. Yeah, that's that. That kind of shows you the the level of uh, attention to detail that they're trying to do between films in the franchise. The, I love the director that hadn't seen the previous ones. I wonder if he's seen Island Island Adventure. <laughs> Might be oh, a favourite. Probably watches that every Christmas. Yeah, no problem. Mm. He's only mm. seen two films: Benny and June, uh, which of course he directed, and, uh, yeah. and Cousin Eddie's and California Adventure. with a K. And uh, but if we're talking about if we're talking about like great scenes or memorable scenes, the mm. the scene with the the cat in the box with Chevy Chase, yes, mm. uh, that is a genius bit of um, kind of physical comedy. I, there's some amazing Chevy Chase physical comedy in this film. I there think really he is. really brings it, like properly brings it full strength and uh, the yeah. scene where he's like miming that there is this crazy animal inside a box and there's nothing in there is just it's, it's magical it's amazing yeah there's a lot of animal based kind of slapstick mm. yeah I, I, I'm not that up on the dog and the squirrel chase at the end I think it's a bit like one of those blockbusters where it's you know the film's coming to an end and now there's just throwing in another action sequence another exploding skyscraper just for the <laughs> sake of it you don't need that necessarily you've already had the Christmas tree You've already had the Christmas tree exploding mm. with the, the cat being electrocuted. I forgot to mention this to, to Jeremiah S. Cheche because I really wanted to ask him about it, but I forgot because I'm an idiot. But the sound effect of the Christmas tree being turned on, the uh, the flames from the electric short circuiting flying towards the cat, which is off screen. And all you hear is that <laughs> is 
it's hilarious to me. It's haunting, it's haunting but hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> did uh, did Jeremiah S. Chechich tell you the story about the squirrel? No. How they did the squirrel story. So basically, uh, it's kind of hilarious. They they spent weeks training this squirrel uh, to do exactly what it needed to do. They're very hard to train, but they had a mm-hmm. team working on it, using snacks to motivate the squirrel and getting all the moves down. And then finally, the day arrives for them to do the squirrel scene, and the squirrel dies on the day <laughs> Sorry. they're just about to record it there's a dead squirrel so they're like oh my god like what are we going to do we have to do the scene and a member of the crew apparently just turned up a couple of hours later with a squirrel and no one asked him where he got it and they just <laughs> put the squirrel into the scene and shot whatever it did you don't get the highly choreographed scene that they were going to do they just no. do some quick cuts but <laughs> i kind wow. of poor squirrel Remember when we did that event and we had an animal panel and I, for some reason, hosted it despite never having yes. had a pet in my life? Anyway, yep. so one of the things they actually talked about was squirrels because they trained a bunch of squirrels for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And they said, uh-huh. essentially, if you want to be really sure of a squirrel doing something it's been trained to do, you need to be training it from birth. So mm. they had had, one of the trainers I was talking to had had basically a wall of cages of mm. baby squirrels in her room for months before that film was made because she had to basically rear them all by hand, like feed them with little droppers in order to train them to crack nuts like they did in that film. So what you needed was more squirrels. I thought they were CG in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I've got to admit. They were partly CG, but they also used real squirrels. Interesting. Okay. Bloody hell. The more you know. There we go. The sad story of the Christmas vacation squirrel. (laughs) R.I.P. Squirrel. I wish I had asked Jeremiah S. Chichik about it, but I'm not a big fan of the squirrel bit, so I didn't ask. Mm. But uh, I would have robbed you of your moment of glory, Nick. What an incredible story. Incredible story. Badly told. I think should be on freaking Parkinson with that story, with that <laughs> anecdote. I think he's <laughs> won the fact minutes. section this week. I don't think there's any need for us to do it in the regular podcast. <laughs> All I've got is squirrel stories. I've got nothing else, but I've got squirrel <laughs> stories. What stands out for you? I mentioned the great cast mm. earlier on. And mm. it genuinely is like, you get... E.G. Marshall turning up, then you get mm. Diane Ladd turning up, then you get Mae Castell turning up, and William Hickey, and on top of the embarrassment of riches that we already have mm. with Bloke from Roseanne and Woman from California, it's <laughs> it's all happening mm. in this movie. Brian mm-hmm. Doyle Mur- Murray as well. Oh, yeah. oh my God, yeah. I love a yeah. bit of Brian Doyle Murray. I can't, really can't do. I He's so great in everything. Um, mm. I kind of wish he'd got a leading role at some point. I know he's not quite the right kind of look or whatever or he wasn't the right age but he's so great in this I love that mm. he's got a Mr. Shirley has like an entourage that just walks around the office with him for no reason I mean <laughs> what is he paying them for like what are they doing but that's so great like this phalanx of yes men who are mm. marching around I love that scene Nick you have the same phalanx you, um... I do I do you, you, you were fired <laughs> from it you, you weren't sufficiently obsequious I wasn't because uh, you were rubbish at it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, I'll- it's so weird. Like COVID's really, really put a crimp in that, but you mm. managed to move them into your house, I understand, and they follow you around from the kitchen to the living room. They're right here. Hang on. Cup of tea. <laughs> right here. Cup of tea. <laughs> Cup of tea. Agree with me. Agree no, with me they've, right gone, they've, gone, they've gone again. Very hard Brandon Murray's great. Brandon Murray looks, has always looked the same age. Mm-hmm. He, he looked the same age then as Bill Murray looks now. He hasn't aged since 1976. I mean, he could be, in this film, he could be any age between 22 and 64. Um, he is he is ageless and, and amazing. I love Brian Doyle Murray. He always improves the film. I also quite enjoy that he has this sort of trophy wife looking wife who turns up to obviously rescue him from his kidnappers or at least to talk to the police as they rescue him from his, um, from his kidnappers. And then she basically like 
rips him a new one and just like has <laughs> it just completely condemns him from for daring to cut his employees' bonuses while she's standing there like draped in mink. Um, <laughs> and I just I, I like that because it's it would have been such an easy joke to have her be the bitch. He has mm. this change of heart and she's like, no, you shouldn't do this. We need the money for the mink. And and instead mm. they they absolutely go the other way. And I kind of enjoy that. I also really enjoyed the SWAT team leader going, that's a real shitty thing to do, mister. If I had a hose, I would beat you with it. <laughs> it was like, no, easy, easy. Uh, also, there's a bit of comedic business for Beverly D'Angelo in that scene. Mm. If you remember, yes. whenever everyone is told to freeze, she has her hand, for some reason, on Clark's crotch. That's right. And when she takes her hand off to shake Frank Shirley's hand, I think it's Frank Shirley's hand, she takes it off to shake someone else's hand anyway, and then she replaces it back on Clark's crotch. Yeah. That's worth it. Glorious. That's, that's it. That's the Glorious. moment. You know, it's just mwah, chef's kiss of a joke. It's Glorious. great stuff. I don't think we've given enough uh, praise to John Hughes. I mean, he, he gets praise all the time from everyone, but <laughs> I mean, it's a John Hughes script and some mm. of the lines yeah. are so gloriously like, you know, you get a funny line, but it just has that weird twist on it that you go, what? Yeah. Like there's a line early on where they're out in the cold and uh, the daughter says, I can't, mom, I can't feel my hips. And it's just the word hips. It's like such an odd, you know, I can't feel my hands or I can't feel my legs but something about picking the word hips really made me laugh out loud I don't know why yeah but it's got that that weird eccentricity to it yeah yeah and you you talked early on about the idea that you know that Clark sometimes shows different facets of himself and I think my theory about him being insane is is a little overamped obviously but sure. there's I think sometimes the real Clark does peek through and there's that moment where he's taking he takes Eddie to um I think, no, it might be the eggnog, actually. It might be the eggnog scene. I, I Forgive me for not being entirely, terribly specific with this, but it's a lovely scene where he's talking to uh, Cousin Eddie and he's saying, is there anything I can get you, Cousin Eddie? You know, drink some food, drive you out in the middle of nowhere, leave you for dead. And that's the real Clark coming through in those little moments of acerbicness, you know, mm. the kiss my ass, kiss your ass, kiss his ass, happy Hanukkah. That's the real Clark showing through, you know, for, for me in those moments. I love little things like that. Or the moment where he's... um. You know, hugging Ellen of a morning. She's going, oh, what are you looking at? Oh, the silent majesty of a winter's morn. And that <laughs> asshole in his bathrobe emptying a chemical toilet into our sewer. It's so good, those moments. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That, that bit is really good. I also like that anytime this, the film does get cute and sentimental, it generally mm. undercuts itself. So you have mm. him stuck in the attic for a start, yeah. which you could tell the moment he went up there, you're like, well, he's definitely going to get stuck here for some reason, even mm. though surely attic doors open both ways. But anyway, he's stuck. <laughs> he gets out the old videos uh, or the old tape of his family. He starts watching these Christmases past, gets bathed in the warm glow of nostalgia and then falls out through the floor. Yeah. Oh, um, and you so could, good. again, you definitely, maybe I remembered it was coming, but you know it's coming. There's going to be something, but it, they, you know, the film never lets him really save in the moment. Not that's really. a lovely scene. Yeah, that is the attic yeah. scene is really lovely when he's looking at the stuff and it's genuinely sweet because that scene is kind of mm. an Alan Partridge episode almost. Like he's just an idiot <laughs> who's got stuck somewhere. But it goes to that place that Alan Partridge never would, where you kind of suddenly go, oh, mm. like he's got some heart and, and you suddenly feel really warm towards him. And then he's an idiot again and it, it's yeah. gone. But it's uh, I think <laughs> Chechit does a brilliant job with the, the tone of the movie. It swings around and uh, mm. he's like got quite tight control of the tone at all times. 
Yeah, I mean, the the scene where he's hanging off, the, he, he tends to get stuck in some really ridiculous places. And in the case of him hanging off the roof, he could easily drop. It's like four foot into a bush. <laughs> and yet he hangs off there for, I don't know, I just noticed this time that that is a ridiculous place for a man to get, to get stuck. I, I love that scene with the, with the lights and falling oh, off and hanging oh. off the roof and you know the shard of ice shattering Todd and Margot's expensive uh, stereo that'll <laughs> serve you right you know I mean you, you clearly earn about as much as Clark does but we're on his side that is for sure and you speaking of undercutting stuff uh, Helen mm. the the end where it could all be sentimental mm-hmm. and then you have this weirdness with Aunt Bethany leading everybody in a grand rendition <laughs> of the Pledge of Allegiance <laughs> it's so weird and undercuts that sentimentality and, and schmaltiness. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it mm-hmm. does. I, I, it does feel a little bit weird in its attitude to commercialism, you know, with the next door neighbours, because, you know, all of their stuff gets trashed, pretty much all yeah. of their stuff at all times. And there is an element of, oh, well, they deserve it because they're yuppies and they just want all the fancy things. And they're modern else. and flashy and look how cold their home yeah. is compared to yeah. the Griswolds. Yeah, but then, I mean, the Griswolds also want, you know, the flashy things and literally a swimming pool, which is not Matt. But Clark has earned it because he has come up with this coating for cereal that locks in the flavor and stops the milk from making it so all true. limp. So I true. love that. They still haven't really properly done that with no. cereal. I eating by be eating legitimately good invention. They had that legitimately good invention. And I also do worry as well, uh, you know, sometimes you watch the movie and you you think, okay, it's all based around this idea of him getting this Christmas bonus. Mm. How much is that Christmas bonus? Like, realistically, how much is it? Because Mm. he wants to put in a swimming pool, which ain't cheap, and then he says, if there's enough left over after all of this, I'm going to fly you all out for the the (laughs) opening of the swimming pool. What the fuck? And the amount of money he's just shelling out in this movie, like Mm. windows are being shattered left, right, and center, Christmas trees are knocking (laughs) over everything. He's buying Cousin Eddie stuff. How much? This guy's fucking minted. He's yeah, getting he's, real he's paid. He's put 7,500 down on the pool, hasn't he? So it must be at least as much again, if not more. Wow. Yeah, he's, he's getting real paid. Mm. He's, he's, he's getting real, real paid. So yeah, to get your bonus from the previous year and add 20%. I mean, what was your bonus from Empire this year, Nick? I imagine it was in the same in the same region, <laughs> my bonus. I, my, I had the same thing where I had to add 20% of my bonus from last year, which is 20% of nothing is nothing. So yeah. I had a reverse bonus. I had to pay ten pounds <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to apply to see if I had a bonus, and then I didn't have a bonus, so it was a nine ninety nine charge. On that note, that is it. It's a it's a fairly short spoiler special this one, but I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed the interview with Jeremiah S. Chechik. This is the last of our mini batch of Christmas-related spoiler specials you will have already heard, Love Actually. Coming in the new year, we have Wonder Woman 1984, hopefully with the director Patty Jenkins, and Soul with directors Pete Docter, Kemp Powers, and producer Dana Murray, and many, many more coming as well. Uh, Why am I telling you this? You already subscribe. But anyway, do tell your friends, spread the word. But until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, until then, it is goodbye from Red Liver Lips himself, old Nick Dissemblian. Stay warm, folks, because it's a bit nipply out. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, that seems problematic now, but that's some word-class punnage wordplay going on from, from Jeffy Chase there. Strong, strong. You know, strong stuff. Strong, if problematic. It is goodbye from Tree Squirrel herself, Helen O'Hara. <laughs> Happy holidays. Happy Happy holidays, everybody. And it's goodbye from me, Mel E. Kamaka. 
no. Great song. Mel E. Kalimaka. Kalikimaka. <laughs> Kalik. Kel- Kelly Kalikimaka. Kelly, 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 Mel Kalikimaka. E. Kalikimaka. Okay. And it's goodbye from me. It's good. And it's goodbye from me. Mel E. Kalikimaka. I'm off to go to the toilet. I really, really, really desperately hope that the shitter is not full. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>